Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and I'm a professor of philosophy at the LMU in Munich. And I'm here to have a chat with the author of an article that appeared in the Journal of the History of Philosophy called Avicenna's Outsourced Rationalism. And the author is Yari Kaukua. Hi, Yari. Hi. Hi, Peter. Do you want to tell us where you are and what your job is? So I'm at the University of Uvescula, which is in central Finland. Uh, I'm working as a professor of philosophy here, teaching philosophy in general, but doing research mostly on, on medieval Islamic philosophy. I would have said that myself, but I didn't trust myself to say Uvescula correctly. <laughs> but I just learned it how, to, how to say it from you, so that's good. Uh, we are not here to talk about Finland, though. We're here to talk about Central Asia, and in particular, a philosopher who lived in Central Asia, namely Ibn Sina who is often called in English after his Latinized name, Avicenna. And uh, I guess I'll let you choose whether we should call him Imcino or Avicenna. Should we call him Avicenna, since that's what you call him in the article? Yeah, let's go with that. I'm used okay. to it. But, folks, his real name was Imcino. Yeah. Okay, uh, so beyond his name, do you want to tell us a little bit about who he was, just for listeners who may not be familiar with the work of this vastly important figure? Right, so we're dealing with a Persian Muslim philosopher from the turn of the first millennium, common era. He died in 1037. He steps into the scene when the uh, translations of the Greek philosophical texts uh, into Arabic were more or less done. And when he comes to the scene, there's already a fairly lively tradition of discussion, uh, both uh, among those who endorse the, the Greek philosophical tradition, the newly translated texts, but also between those philosophers and Muslim theologians who were dealing with some of the same some of the same questions. So in a way, he he comes to a to a stage that's already set. But he 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 makes a profound and wide-ranging contribution uh, on almost all areas of philosophy. I would say it's very influential in both Islamic and 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 Christian intellectual culture uh, subsequently. And I think you would agree when, if I, if I say that he's one of the absolutely brightest stars of, of medieval philosophy, regardless of, of cultural context or language. And absolutely, one of the, one of the absolutely central thinkers. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. I always say that he's the most important medieval philosopher. Yeah. Because the other candidates for that title get so many of their ideas from him or are responding to him. So he sort of plays the role in medieval philosophy that, like, Aristotle does in ancient philosophy or Kant does in German modern philosophy. Indeed, yeah. Your title is Avicenna's Outsourced Rationalism. And I thought that being philosophers, we should probably be uh, good about defining our terms at the outset. So maybe you could say something about rationalism, especially because I think that's a word that people might have different associations with. You're contrasting that to empiricism. So if you have in your head the empiricist versus rationalist debates of early modern philosophy, that's relevant, right? But maybe you can just say what you take empiricism and rationalism to consist in for the purposes of this conversation. Right. In, in, in the most general sense, I'll, I'll begin with empiricism because I think that's perhaps slightly easier. In a very general sense of the term, I suppose empiricism just means an epistemological stance that holds that all of our knowledge and all of our concepts are derived from sense perception. But then I think in this article, a more relevant definition of uh, empiricism is a slightly stronger one, which holds that all our knowledge and all our concepts are derived from simple sense percepts. Things like the sensation of the color red or the color blue, things like the sensation of a sound of a certain pitch, 
a certain smell or something like that. And then any more complex concepts that we have are somehow constructed from these simple percepts by, by our mind. And obviously then this uh, entails the possibility that things go wrong in the construction or that what is the result of that constructing process by the mind is not an accurate representation of whatever is out there in reality. So this kind of empiricism, this empiricism in the stronger sense, or entails uh, at least a, a, a moderate or methodological skepticism about whether our concepts actually correspond to anything in the world. So that would be empiricism as, I, as, as it is uh, dealt with in this paper. Rationalism then uh, is perhaps slightly trickier, but I suppose we could define it as, 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 as saying that, that at least some of our concepts are known in a way, or at least some of our knowledge is such that it cannot be reduced to sense perception. So, and, and this could be for a number of reasons. Perhaps some of our concepts are innate to the mind, we are born with them, and then either they are actualized when we perceive something, or perhaps we can even know them without any, any, any perception. So that's one version. Another would be that, that some of our knowledge is such that we just intuit or somehow directly get the concepts from the world without sense perception acting as a mediator, or at least without this intuited content being in any way reducible to, to, to perceptible content. That would be another version of rationalism. Usually, I, I think it's fair to say that rationalism or, or a rationalist would be more optimistic about the capacity of our mind to grasp reality as it is. So the, this, uh, this sort of veil of the, the senses or the veil of sense perception uh, is not there, at least for some of our concepts or some of our knowledge. So, so for that reason, rational, a, a rationalist would perhaps be more optimistic, epistemologically speaking. Okay, so it sounds like on your view, or at least on the way you're using the word, rationalism really just comes down to being the denial of empiricism. Empiricism is the view that all concepts and knowledge come ultimately, if not directly, from sense perception. And rationalism would be the view that that's not true, and then you specify which kind of rationalist you are by saying what the other source would be, whether it's, you know, innate ideas or God beaming knowledge into your mind or whatever it may be. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair assessment. And your work here on Avicenna is, I take it, a response to and was perhaps prompted by an earlier piece that was written by Dmitry Gutas, which is article in which Gutas, who's a very well-known and important scholar of Avicenna's thought, um, Gutas argues that Avicenna was an empiricist, and he draws a direct comparison between Avicenna's epistemology and that of John Locke, the famous early modern English empiricist. So it, maybe it's obvious from the title <laughs> that you don't think that Avicenna is an empiricist, but maybe you could first of all say what the grounds would be for ascribing some version of empiricism to Avicenna. So the reasons why Gutas would have thought it made sense to describe his epistemology as empiricist. Right. So, yeah, I think in a modest sense, Avicenna is an empiricist. I mean, he, he, he clearly denies that, that there are innate ideas in the mind. And, uh, I mean, he, he does have a notion that is frequently translated as intuition in English, but I think he, he means something quite different with that from what a sort of a rationalist concept of intuition would mean. So in that sense, uh, I mean, since he sort of denies the, the usual rationalist uh, methods for gaining this direct knowledge about the world, I mean, it would 
might perhaps make sense to say that he's he's an empiricist. I mean, he, he would certainly be an empiricist in much the same sense as someone like Aristotle is an empiricist. So ultimately, I mean, we need to perceive the world in order to get started with, with the acquisition of our knowledge. And all of our sciences ultimately are based on, on sense percepts in that sense. But I think where I firmly disagree with, with Gutas is that, uh, I mean, this kind of empiricism is far removed from Lockean empiricism. I think Locke's brand of empiricism, and I think much of early modern empiricism, uh, is is a much stronger thesis. And as I say in the article, I mean, it, it, it boils down to at least three views that, that are fundamentally, I mean, something with which I think neither Aristotle nor, nor Avicenna would agree, even if they are empiricists in this looser sense. So I think, first of all, Locke is, is, is motivated by, by the challenge of, of radical skepticism or global skepticism, which I think is not there for Aristotle, at least not prominently, and, and perhaps surprisingly is not there for Avicenna either. I don't think he takes that challenge seriously anywhere, anywhere in his works. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, is that I think... Uh, it's important to, to realize that for Locke, epistemology is first philosophy, as opposed to, to Aristotle and Avicenna, who I think both would be willing to say that they are building their system on, on metaphysics. I mean, logic obviously plays, plays an important role, but logic in their sense, as the, as the sort of the instrument of philosophy, is not quite the same. I mean, it's not quite what, what, what Locke means by, by epistemology, because for, for Locke, epistemology as first philosophy is precisely this sort of attempt to explain the generation of our concepts from these these simple uh, perceptual ideas that we have, and I, I, I think that's quite different from from uh, logic in the in the Aristotelian or Avicennian sense, logic as an instrument instrument of thought. And then finally, the third feature of Lockean empiricism, which I think is completely lacking. Uh, okay, well, completely. That's a, that's perhaps saying a bit too much, but it's certainly not prominent there in, in Avicenna is this sort of epistemological resignation or epistemological sort of modest skepticism that, that Locke ends up with. And I think that's, a, that's, an, that's an essential part of Lockean empiricism and something that's simply not there for Avicenna. I mean, Locke, Locke would be quite close to someone like, uh, in contemporary the, uh, theory of science, something, like, something that is called fallibilism, the idea that our even our best theories are, are are true only until proven otherwise, and we can't we can never know for certain whether whether they are the true true models or the true representations of reality. And I think Lockean empiricism entails this, but Avicennian is quite far removed from that. So on these grounds, I would say that uh, that instead of a Lockean empiricist, Avicenna is really a uh, irrationalist of a certain 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 sort. And I then try to substantiate that view in the article. Before I ask you about how you argue for that, let me just uh, touch on one kind of knowledge that I think might raise questions, which is first principles. And I just want to see if we can get clear on this. So if we have a first principle, like let's say the whole is greater than the part, or a famous one is that for, for Avicenna, existence is divided into the contingent and the necessary, right? And it might seem kind of strange, given that he's always invoking these first principles or first intelligibles that don't have any further basis. It might seem strange to suppose that those are gleaned from sensation. But I take it that you're agreeing with Gutas that, and you actually quote a passage which suggests this, that Avicenna thinks that we get first principles and first intelligibles 
sort of along with sensation. So the so I mean, obviously, something like giraffes have long necks or apples are red is something that you could get from sensation. But he would even think that something like the whole or is greater than the part or existence is either necessary or contingent, that that's something you would only be able to know once you've enjoyed sense experience. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. But then that's a that's a difficult question. I think I think you're pointing at, at a genuine problem in Avicenna's theory. I mean, so I think it it almost sees, seems as if some of these first intelligibles or first principles are such that you know as soon as we perceive something, anything really, we get those concepts. Uh, maybe not the you know the, the the principle that the the whole is greater than the part or something like that, but at least concepts like existence or one or I mean, some of the the, the most fundamental concepts that we have, it seems as if those are triggered by any kind of perception that we have. Okay, not as something that we can articulate, but then again, those are such concepts that we may never be able to fully articulate. But some kind of understanding of being will be there as soon as there is conscious experience. Now, if that is the case, uh, I suppose that could also be used as an argument against Avicenna being an empiricist in any any sort of robust sense of the word, because it, it comes very close to the kind of rationalist intuition, which allows you to, to, to get these ultimately rather complex things simply by, 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 by having, a, having a perception of anything really. But I didn't really want to, I, I sort of wanted to give the benefit of doubt to, to Gutas on that regard and, and, and try to sort of unearth texts which would suggest that Avicenna thinks that the, even these concepts, even these first intelligibles are, are derived from sense perception in a meaningful way. Okay. So let's now turn to your argument for what you call his outsource rationalism. And this is going to involve the famous principle that he calls the active intellect. Right. So maybe I can just quickly sketch the idea there, and then you can build on that. So Avicenna has this theory, which might sound a little bit strange to some of our listeners, but actually fits very well into the tradition of Aristotelian and Platonic cosmology, according to which a chain of intellects is descending from God, emanated from him, and these intellects are somehow connected with the celestial spheres. And the lowest of these intellects is the active intellect, which gives forms to things in the earthly realm. So, for example, when some matter is prepared to be a giraffe baby, the form of the giraffe is given to the matter by the active intellect. And then the active intellect is also supposed to, also supposed to have some kind of role in human knowledge, but as you say in the article, it's one of the most controversial things in Avicenna scholarship, exactly what the active intellect is doing in our acquisition of knowledge. Now, whatever it's doing, if it has some kind of causal role in giving us knowledge, we might immediately think, well, then obviously Avicenna is not an empiricist because we're getting knowledge zapped into our minds by the active intellect. So why is this even a conversation, mm. right? So I think what's interesting about your take is that you want to give... An active, the active intellect, a substantive role in knowledge formation without denying that there's some sense in which Avicenna is an empiricist, as you've already said. And this is where we get to what you call his outsourced rationalism. So with that kind of as background, I hope you thought that was relatively accurate. Can you now explain what the active intellect does on your reading and how, therefore, it makes sense to talk about Avicenna as a rationalist as well as an empiricist? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, let me try to do that. So, so I think um, I'll, I'll start with a slightly different idea. Another idea central to to, to Avicenna's uh, uh, theory of knowledge or theory of perception. So, 
So he thinks that, that the way in which we know, the way in which we derive concepts of complex things, I mean, or concepts of things like substances, like, like your giraffe or, or a horse or a human being, is by abstracting these, these essences or these essence concepts from, uh, from our sense perception or whatever is, 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 is uh, transmitted to us by, by our sense perception. And I think this process of, of uh, abstraction uh, I mean, presupposes something that sort of undermines the idea that Avicenna is a, a, a robust empiricist in any meaningful sense, because it requires him to, to, to assume that sense perception actually carries a lot more information than, than just the, the sort of the simple percepts, things like the color, perception of the color red or the, or, or the perception of a sound of a certain pitch. So there has to be something in sense perception that you can abstract from it. And the abstraction takes place by way of, of, of our sort of uh, stripping off uh, accidental features of things like giraffes. I mean, the particular length of its neck or the particular color of its skin offer. I don't know which one it is <laughs> that is colored in a giraffe. And uh, I mean, things like that, things that, are, that, are, uh, that belong to particular giraffes instead of the essence of giraffe hood. So we, we, uh, we strip off those features and then ultimately what we're left is the essence of giraffe or, or giraffe hood as such. And that's then the concept of our concept of giraffe. And it's also the intelligible giraffe or giraffe hood. Now, in order for that to be possible, sense perception must contain this, uh, this sort of core giraffe hood in itself. It must be there along with the, the perceptible features. And I think that's, that's an idea that that someone like Locke would never have accepted. I mean, his, his, his uh, point with having epistemology as a first principle was precisely the opposite, to explain how we get from the simple percepts to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to, to an essence concept like, like the concept of giraffe. Whereas in Avicenna, it's, it's sort of the other way around. How do we get rid of the simple percepts? And then sort of, uh, then, then we simply find find the uh, find the, uh, the the uh, the substance concept sort of something as something that was already there in in our sense perception so that's one thing another thing and here we get to the active active intellect part another thing is that 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 yeah in addition to active to the active intellect's um, controversial role in the production of our knowledge it's also it's also responsible as you said for sort of impressing these essences in matter in the first place. So it's, it's responsible for there being particular giraffes when the sort of the material circumstances are right. And so, I mean, if we continue this, this line of thought, we realize that actually the intelligibility of giraffehood that is then transmitted to us through sense perception is actually due to the fact that it has an intellectual origin. It was unintelligible to begin with. I mean, when it was when giraffehood was there or is there in the active intellect, it's it's intelligible to begin with. Then it becomes something concrete, but it retains its intelligibility, which then is sort of reactualized in in our mind when we when we abstract that concept. And that's why I, I, I call Avicenna uh, or Avicenna's rationalism outsourced. I mean, it's clear that these ideas are not these concepts are not innate to our mind, but they are. Uh, I mean, they they serve the function of innate ideas in a in a sort of a circumspect way. I mean, ultimately, their origin is a mind, 
or, or an intellect that is, well, it's superior to ours, but as an intellect, it's the same. It's, it's a, a similar kind of thing or a similar kind of being. So listeners might have been puzzled because we said at the beginning that rationalism is just the denial of empiricism. And so how could it possibly make sense to say that someone is, in some sense, both an empiricist and a rationalist? And if I understand you correctly, the answer is something like this, that although Avicenna would agree with empiricists that you couldn't get any knowledge without sense perception. Some of the knowledge that you get through sense perception is something that is only knowledge because it started in a mind and was then sort of funneled through sense experience into your mind. Yes. Right. And that's why you're able to get at something like the essence of giraffe, even though you could never possibly cobble together the essence out of, of giraffe out of seeing things like colors and, and you know, smelling uh, seeing colors and shapes, smelling the way giraffes smell. You just, in fact, as you said, Avicenna is inclined to think that those things get in the way of understanding the, right. the essence of giraffe so far from sort of being put together to constitute the essence of giraffe. Yeah, but they do not get in on the way in any sort of fatal sense of the word. So there's no... I mean, it's not... I don't want to claim that it's a, it's a it's necessarily a straightforward matter to get to the essence of giraffehood, but it's in principle possible for us. It's in, prin mm -hmm. it's in principle possible because giraffehood in itself, even when even in concrete giraffes, is intelligible. So it's like but there's the no principle sort of veil of the senses. We can we, we can get rid of the the sort of the accidental features of particular giraffes. So it's sort of like the accidental sensible features are a package which delivers the essence to you, but then you have to unwrap the package and get rid of the packaging and what you're left with inside is the essence. Yeah, that's a beautiful comparison. Okay, well, before we stop, I wanted to ask you about one other thing which you don't discuss in the article or right. don't discuss very much, but I, we've discussed this on other occasions, so I know you have a lot to say about it. In fact, you wrote a whole book about self-awareness in Avicenna and later thinkers, and this is a famous passage about self-awareness. So what I have in mind here is, of course, the flying man argument. Right. Uh, so maybe you want to have a go explaining the flying man thought experiment, and then I'll say why I think it might be relevant. Okay. So so yeah, the the flying man is basically yeah, it's a thought experiment that asks us to to imagine ourselves uh, in a situation where we are floating in air, mid air. Uh, the, uh, the temperature of which is precisely the same as our body and our, none of the, none of the uh, members of our body are touching each other. So basically we are we're having no, no tactile perceptions. Our ears, eyes, nose, taste are also uh, blocked out. So we are not having any perceptions whatsoever. And then we're supposed to imagine ourselves to be created to this state. So we have no prior personal history. And this, in Avicenna's uh, cognitive psychology, means that we cannot imagine anything because all imagination is is done by means of material that you 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 have first perceived. If you, if you cannot perceive anything, you cannot imagine anything. And by the same token, we can't remember anything because there's nothing to remember. And now Avicenna asks, "Will you be aware of anything in such a situation?" Then he answers, "Well." You will be there. You will be aware of yourself, even if there's no object for you to be aware of. And they, he then uses this as a as a piece of evidence, perhaps not as a as a decisive proof, but at least a, at least as a piece of evidence towards psychological substance dualism. So the self or the soul is independent of the body. 
Right. So maybe the reason I think this is relevant to the conversation we've just had is obvious, but I'll spell it out. If we think that Avicenna is an empiricist in this limited sense that you couldn't have any knowledge or concepts at all without engaging in sense perception, then why isn't the flying man a counterexample to that? Because it seems that the person in the flying man thought experiment situation at least knows that they exist. So there's something that they know. And by the way, once they know that they exist, they could presumably also do things like get the primary intelligible yes. that existence is divided into contingent and necessary, right? So there yes. would be a nice example of a primary intelligible that's not only derivable from sense experience. Because the whole point of the flying man thought experiment is that we have someone who ha has no sense experience and never, has never had any sense experience. So, I mean, I would, and I always thought this was kind of strange about Gutas's article is that he takes someone who's maybe got the most famous thought experiment in the history of philosophy about someone in a sensory deprivation situation, knowing something. And then he says, yeah, this person is an empiricist, right? right? So how, how does, how do we, I mean, maybe you could say, well, that's, you know, that's an exception to what it otherwise is a thoroughgoing empiricism. But um, I take it that you don't think it's an exception. So how do you get around that? Yeah, so I think here, I mean, it might be helpful to get back to Locke, who who, uh, who uh, recognizes two sort of uh, sources of primitive ideas. He speaks of sense perception on the one hand, but then he speaks of something that I, I think he uses the word reflections. So so we also, in addition to, to sense percepts in the sense of perceptions of objects distinct from ourselves, we also have perceptions of our own states. And some of these perceptions are also primitive in the sense and something on which we build or on which our mind builds in, in, in forming concepts. And I think Avicenna, if we look at some of his logical works, when he discusses the, the sort of the possible kinds of premises that we can, we can have, when he discusses what he calls mahsusat, which is sensible premises or perceptual premises uh, in, in a broad sense of the word, he interestingly includes two kinds of uh, premise there. So one of these are sensual premises or perceptible premises roughly in the sense that we've been talking about so perceptions of things other than us but then the other class interestingly is perceptions of ourselves our own states things like our you know we might be angry sad or or or, or happy or then we might feel pain or or indeed i think he also mentions the fact that we are aware of ourselves now it's obvious that those are not perceptions in the technical sense of the word. Although, interestingly, he uses the same term. They, he includes them under mahsusat, but they're not, they're not sense perception in, 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 in the sense in which he speaks of the five senses and then of the internal senses. But, but I think, you know, if we, if, we, if we bear that in mind, then we could say that, that, that even the flying man could be, could be fitted here. So, so, so it's, it's, just, it's not, strictly speaking, a sense perception, but it is, it is a perception or it is, we can think of it as an empirical source of information. It's a source of a very different kind from, from these other sources. It's always there. We, we cannot fail to have it. As long as we're there, we're aware of ourselves. But still, it's, it's, something, that we, it's, it's something that we gain by means of experience. But then you're so right. The I mean, it, it, it also seems to give rise immediately to these first intelligible. If I know that I exist, then... I must know what existence is in some sense of the word. And yeah, and then the distinction between existence and uh, 
essence and existence, it, it also seems to be there. And perhaps unity, things like unity, I, 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 I'm aware of myself as, as some one thing and things of that sort. So basically the upshot of this is that he would still be an empiricist, but his empiricism would include experiences that aren't strictly sensory experiences. Yes. There, there could be things like perception of one's own reality. Yes. Right. Okay. Great. Okay. So I think we covered that pretty well. Uh, obviously, I would encourage people to go check out the article and also check out Yadi's book on self-awareness in Islamic philosophy, which is really interesting and goes well beyond Avicenna in addition to discussing Avicenna quite a lot. Uh, but for now, I guess we'll stop there. And uh, thanks so much for coming on this series, Yadi. Thank you, Peter. Thanks a lot. This was a, this was a great deal of fun. Yep, for me too. Thanks. Thanks.